let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. We're looking today at Jesus's uh, triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and we call this time uh, Palm Sunday. And it's called Palm Sunday because it's the week prior to Jesus's crucifixion, which uh, occurred on Friday, and then uh, his resurrection on Sunday. So just a week prior to his resurrection is what we call Palm Sunday. And the reason we call it Palm Sunday is Jesus rode in on a donkey, as we're going to look at, and a donkey, not a horse, and we'll look at that, the significance of that. He rode into Jerusalem on the precise day that he was supposed to, and we'll look at that too, because uh, that's also very, very significant because it fulfilled prophecy to the letter, to the day, and I think you'll find that really fascinating. Some of you have heard this in, in, in past years, but we'll briefly look at that as well. And, and the reason they call it Palm Sunday as well is because as he made that journey on that donkey to, from the Mount of Olives, going down uh, the Kidron Valley uh, up into the city of Jerusalem, is that people would lay uh, branches, palm fronds, and clothing, and stuff like that. And they would do that as a, as a sign of, uh, of warmth, as a sign of peace, uh, because he is the Prince of Peace. And so Jesus would go into Jerusalem on this donkey, riding upon uh, palm fronds and, and clothing that people would lay down in his path uh, going up to Jerusalem. And so... It was at this time, just before we get started, just a little bit of a background here before we look at chapter 21 of Matthew. This was the first time that Jesus presented himself to the nation as their king. You remember there were times when the disciples and others wanted to um, uh, coronate Jesus because uh, they wanted to be the, the yoke of Rome, the heavy-handedness of Rome to be off of the Israel nation. And so they were looking forward to Jesus' kingdom coming physically, but they didn't understand uh, what we understand uh, that the Bible had foretold for uh, hundreds of years and even a few thousand years that, that there would be a period of time in between his death and resurrection uh, before he would physically come back to the earth. And that period of time has lasted, uh, at least for now, uh, nearly uh, around 2,000 years. And so... So this was the first time that he allowed himself and, and actually made it very clear that he was presenting himself as the king of Israel because up to this point he did not allow it. And we'll look at that. And there was a right time for him to do it, but um, it, th this wasn't the moment until this very moment that we're looking at today. And Jesus was also entering in the final week of his ministry and his life while here on the earth, uh, physically in his, uh, in his body. And then after that, he would be crucified. He would be resurrected on the third day and then be visible. The Bible says that up to 500 people saw him while on the earth in his glorified body. Now, uh, we know that there are other people who have been resurrected. Uh, Lazarus, for one, was resurrected. But when Lazarus was resurrected, he still had his body, his physical body. But when Jesus was resurrected, his body was a brand new body. It was a celestial body, a body that could go through physical material. That's why before even the door, the, 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 the big circular uh, stone was rolled away, he had already vanished because he was able to pass right through that stone. In fact, the wraps just kind of collapsed 
um, down and the napkin around his head was folded in a separate place. And so Jesus was in a different body, but he was seen by up to 500 people at once, testifying that he did rise from the grave. And this is fact, and this is even uh, outside of the Bible. Extra-biblical sources say that, that he rose from the dead. He was seen by uh, people uh, up to 500 at least 40 days after his resurrection. Then he ascended into heaven from that Mount of Olives. And so he was entering in this final week and how difficult this week must have been for him, knowing what was coming, knowing what was coming. You know, Jesus, his life was not taken from him. He willingly laid down his life for his sheep and we are all his sheep. If you're a Christian, you're, you're, you're his sheep and, or a potential sheep. If you're here this morning and you've never given your heart to Jesus, um, I would encourage you to be part of his fold because he is the good shepherd and he wants to make you uh, part of his family. And, and it's a heavenly family and um, it's one that we're going to be in for eternity and it will never end. And so one of the things I loved about Jesus as he was uh, in this final week is that he did mention to his disciples on three occasions that he would be taken, that he would be crucified, and that he would rise again on the third day. In fact, in Matthew chapter 16, you might just want to write these references down, and I'm just going to read uh, the first one and the last one to you, but I'll give you all three references. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. This is the first time that Jesus had mentioned that he was going to be taken And it says in uh, 16, verse 21, it says, From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And notice, and be killed and and be raised the third day. That's what the Bible says. And that's exactly what happened. And do you believe that this morning? Because that's what the record of the Bible says. And these weren't just... Uh, things that were handed down. These were written by eyewitnesses. Do you understand that the gospel account is written by eyewitnesses? There's nothing greater in a court of law than an eyewitness. An eyewitness who has all the facts and can clearly, and over and, and being interrogated several times, giving the exact same thing because it was true to his own heart. It's true to what he, he saw with his own eyes. There's no greater thing than an eyewitness in any case. And these men were eyewitnesses to Jesus' crucifixion, His resurrection, and even His ascension. And that's critical. And that's critical. And the second time He mentioned it to Him, uh, to His disciples, was in Matthew chapter 17. These are all in in the Gospel of Matthew. In verse 22 it says, Now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. And notice, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, because even the disciples' understanding of what Jesus' ministry was and ultimately what it was going to lead to, a cross, they didn't quite get. It was not until um, even uh, after his crucifixion and his resurrection that it finally, all the pieces fit together, and they finally understood all the things that Jesus had said to them. And then finally, uh, right before the passage we're looking at today, Uh, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, ready to uh, take his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Just prior to that, it's recorded for us in Matthew 20, verse 17. It says, Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, because wherever you go in, in, in Israel, 
Whenever, wherever you're from, whether it's from the north, the south, east, or west, you're always going up because Mount Zion, which is uh, uh, Mount Moriah, which is an, a chain of, of a mountain chain up there, a mountain range. Uh, wherever you go from there to go up there, you're going up, and so. Uh, that's what it says. It says, Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside on the road. And what's interesting is in my mind, I can still see the road that Jesus went up on. Because when we were in Israel just about two weeks ago, a little more than two weeks ago, we took that road. And it was a very well-known road. And finally, they just ended up paving it after hundreds of years of people walking and, and making a pathway. But it's right next to Jericho. Right to the on the east side, um, actually on the west side of the Jordan River, right near Jericho, there is a road that goes up and and goes west into uh, Jerusalem. And going west on that road, you'll encounter the the Judean foothills, and it's just a beautiful, beautiful sight as you uh, make that ascent. And it's a it's it's a several miles of ascending into the mountain range, and then finally you see it. Finally, you, 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 you see the Temple Mount, and there it is in all of its glory. And so Jesus, he took them, he went aside on the road, and he says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. Notice, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. And don't you love that about Jesus? I mean, think about the disciples, you know, prior to this moment that we're going to read here. You know, Jesus had been telling them this. He'd been forecasting, uh, telling them in advance things that were going to happen to him that had been prophesied in the Bible hundreds of years prior. I mean, if you look at Psalm 22, if you look at Isaiah 53, if you look at Genesis 3, verse 15, it all talked about Jesus being crucified, this humble servant. Uh, being crucified, not only just for the sins of Israel, but for the sin of the whole world. And, And that's significant. And so, he is the good shepherd. And that's what a good shepherd does. A good shepherd prepares people for what's coming. And that's who Jesus is. He's a good shepherd. Is he your shepherd? He's my shepherd. And I'm so thankful that he leads me in and out of pasture. He, he, he leads me down in those, in those green meadows, as it says in Psalm 1. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He, um, he prepares a table before my enemies. He, he fills me. And, and does he fill you as well? If you're a Christian, he ought to, and he does. And enjoy that. Enjoy that. But he is the good shepherd. He goes before a good shepherd in the... In Israel, before he would allow his sheep to go into any pasture that he was leading them in, he would always go in first before the sheep go in and he would look all around and see if there's any poisonous berries, any poisonous leafy vegetables. Um, He would go and make sure there's a water supply. Is there a stream nearby? Is that stream uh, clear? Is it running well? Is it clean of parasites? And so that's what a, a good shepherd does. And that's what the shepherds did of old. And Jesus, our good shepherd, he went before us. He was our example. He actually showed us by his death on the cross. He says, I'm going to do this for you. And, and, and he set forth an example. Now, we don't have to die physically in the sense of being uh, crucified on a cross. He doesn't call us to be crucified on a cross. He died for the sin of man and the sin of the world. 
But what we are to do is to die to ourselves, meaning put off those things that, are, that we know are sinful. You know, anything in your life, we are to put off those things. So Jesus is the good shepherd. And we're going to look at this Friday, the time that he was crucified and the events surrounding that. And then finally Sunday, we'll be looking at his resurrection. But let's look now at chapter 21. It says, Now when they drew near, the, the disciples and those uh, that road that I was talking about earlier, uh, right next to uh, Jericho, going up to Jerusalem, uh, there were a lot of pilgrims at that time. And um, there were a lot of pilgrims at that time that were also coming along with Jesus. And they were all together going up that road. And that road now is paved today. And so, um, so when they drew near Jerusalem and they came to Bethpage, Bethpage is a small little village on the Mount of Olives because as you go up that hill, um, at the very top of that hill is the Mount of Olives. And then you go down a valley in the Kidron Valley and then there's uh, Jerusalem um, up on the, on the next part of the, of the other hill. So this place is called Bethpage. It literally means the village of unripe figs at the Mount of Olives. And then notice, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And who knows who these don this donkey and this colt belong to, but Jesus uh, had authority. And he said the Lord, you know, he needed them. And so... Um, they went and they and they brought the donkeys or brought the, the the two donkeys. Excuse me. And in Mark's gospel, it says something really interesting that that Matthew's gospel doesn't share. And so in Mark chapter eleven verse two, it says that uh, that he told the disciples to go into the village and when they entered it to find a colt tied on which no man has sat. No man has sat. So. Here you have this donkey that no one has ever sat on. Have you ever sat on a horse or a donkey that no one has ever sat on? Doesn't the horse or donkey need to be broken? Don't they have to go through a, a period of, you know, you, you get up on this animal and, and they've never had that happen and they're not very excited. And what are they going to do? They're going to they're gonna buck you right off. And so, but I think it's interesting that even this cult that no one had ridden, Jesus was able to climb on top of this this animal, and the animal was in immediate submission to the master. And you think of that, I mean, the, the very one who, who created this donkey, that created this colt, was now riding on the back of it, and there was no rebellion, there was no fighting, there was no struggle. The animal immediately submitted to him. I think that's pretty significant, because um, that's not the way it is in real life. But Jesus has that effect. And you know, isn't it funny that uh, just in the context here, how nature responds and obeys Jesus. He can cause the wind. He can say, wind cease. You see that when in passages in the Gospels, when Jesus was going across the Galilee, he could calm, he could calm a storm. He, could, he had command over demon spirits that were in people. He had complete control, and everything had to obey him. But there's one element, there's one part of his creation, actually the capstone of his creation, which is man, you and I. And yet he gives us the ability, the wonderful and scary ability, and that is free choice. And most of the world has rebelled against the Lord. And, and so why can't we submit 
like this donkey that had never had a man ride him, why can't we submit ourselves to Jesus Christ? And that's a question I want you to think about as we continue going on here, is that we ought to be willing to submit to him. We ought to be willing to uh, give our hearts completely and obey him. Because if Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. Now, that doesn't mean that we're all going to obey him to the T every single time. And that's why we need to, when we sin, when we fail, we need to confess it. Uh, as it says in First John chapter 1, verses um, uh, 8, 9, and 10, we need to confess it and he will forgive us. Um, and then we need to repent and turn from that thing, whatever it is, right? And then if we mess up again, we continue to confess and we continue to come to Him. He is the source of everything we need. And so we need not, regardless of how many times we fail, know that you can go to Christ and you can receive the forgiveness. If you're sincere, He is not going to turn you away. But let's not get into a, a thing where we play games with God. And there's a lot of people who do that. They'll say, forgive me, Lord. And they go out and they drink and they live a life of debauchery. And then they come and... Uh, they, they say, I'm sorry, Lord, but in their heart, they're really not sorry. Um, that's not the kind of thing we ought to do, but to turn. But let's go back into verse 3 now. So he said to them, if anyone says anything to you, so he tells his disciples, go and get this uh, donkey and the colt and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. And all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. Notice, a prophet had spoken these words about 500 years prior to this event. And who was this prophet? Well, it's Zechariah. What does it say in verse 5? Here's the verse. It's in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It says, Behold, your king is coming to you. Your king, Jerusalem, is coming. Your king, Israel, is coming to you. Lowly and sitting on a donkey a colt, the foal of a donkey. Do you understand how specific that is? Now that's a prophecy written by Zechariah 500 years prior to what we're reading, uh, roughly 500 years prior to what we're reading now. And that, that's a very precise scripture, a prophecy. Now, uh, and so, in fact, in Zechariah 9, verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Zion is the, is the hill, really, Mount Moriah. Zion is really the uh, southern part of that, uh, of that mountain there, Mount Moriah. And it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, meaning the Israelites, the Jews, and specifically Jerusalem. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I don't know about you, but that's just, it's almost comical if you read that and you're thinking, well, if this is the king, if he's bringing salvation, if he is the God of all creation, if he's the Messiah, and all the Jews knew that the Messiah was God in the flesh, they knew that, then why is he coming in on a donkey? Why not some kind of, you know, Ford F-350 with dual wheels on the back you know, and nitrous oxide and a big bullhorn and a 50 caliber mounted on the front of the hood. Um, no, he didn't come that way. He didn't come as a conquering king then. He's coming as a conquering king later, even yet future to us. But he came in as a lowly, meek Jesus to, say, to seek and to save the lost. He was the, lion, he was the, the, the meek lion, lamb that came to be slaughtered to be sacrificed for you and I. 
And, um, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. So going on to verse 6. So the disciples, they went and they did as Jesus commanded them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and their clothes on them, and they set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road, and cut down, and others cut down branches from the trees, and they spread them on the road. And, um, and again, great kings, whenever they would come into a city, especially a, a city that they have conquered or a city that they called home, they would always come in on a horse, probably a stallion uh, of some kind, uh, a really powerful horse. They would come in as a, as, a, as, as a visage, really, of power and strength and domination. And that's what uh, kings would do. But Jesus comes in on a donkey on a donkey because his first coming to the earth and his presenting himself as king for the first time to Israel was as a meek lamb who would go to the slaughter for them. But we also know that in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, Jesus, when he comes back, and this event is yet future to us, in the physical second coming of Jesus, not the rapture. Don't get the rapture confused with the second coming. The rapture occurs first. And then the second coming, at least seven years later, Jesus, along with us, comes back to the earth. And that is a physical coming to this earth. And let me read it to you just really briefly because this is, if there's anything that's going to encourage you during this time, uh, trust me, this is going to encourage you because let me just read to you what it says in Revelation 19, verse 11. And again, this is the second coming the physical second coming of Jesus to the earth. Now remember, he came in to Jerusalem on a donkey, meek and mild, the lamb who was led to slaughter. But notice when he comes back the second time, it's going to be completely different. He's coming back as the lion of the tribe of Judah to exact vengeance on a world that has rejected him. Notice what it says. John records for us in Revelation 19, verse 11, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Notice, his eyes were like a flame of fire. Does this sound like a meek, mild lamb going to slaughter? No, this is a conquering general, Jesus Christ, God Almighty in the flesh. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no one knew except for himself. Notice, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in white linen, that's you and I, on, uh, and followed him on white horses. And, uh, and now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he he himself will rule them with a rod of iron he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty god and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written and here's the name king of kings and lord of lords and see that is the great king who is coming again and the title of the message this morning is the king is coming and certainly in this a situation here in Revelation. I'm sorry, in uh, Matthew 21, he came and presented himself as king, but he's also coming yet to to the earth, to the earth, and and we just read it when he comes. And let me ask you, do you know Jesus Christ? Do you really know him? You know, now is the time to not play games with religion. Now is the time to not. Um, um, uh, fake anything. This is a time that we have to get our eyes 
single and focused on the one who created all things and the one who loves us so wonderfully, so magnificently that he gave himself to be the sin. He paid the price. He became sin for us. The very blood of God was shed on that cross on Calvary. And what are you going to do with that information? I want to challenge you today. And even if you're a Christian and you've been serving him and you've known him for years, don't just rest on your lees and settle back in your chair. No, now is the time more than ever for us to put feet on our faith and tell people about Jesus because that is the only thing right now that's going to save them. And I believe that more than ever during this time that we live in with this, um, this worldwide um, thing that we got going here, there is going to be an outpouring, and, and there already is actually, people crying out to the Lord. They're really asking, and they're broken, they're heartbroken, they're, they're, they're scared, they're wondering what this all means. And see, the Bible tells us, Jesus said in Matthew that these things would happen. These are the beginning of sorrows. And he said there would be pestilences, there'd be famines, there'd be earthquakes in diverse places. And more than ever before, this is happening uh, more than ever before. I mean, even people who have been looking at this, the, the, this data for the last 50 years have all concluded that the, the, these activities are ramping up. It's like uh, Jesus likened it to a woman who was uh, going through labor. And ladies, you know when you go through labor, those spasms are few and far between. But as the baby gets, comes forth to be delivered, those, those um, contractions and, and the pain gets more intense as it gets closer. And that's exactly what we see happening. And so you can either ignore those things... Or you can say, goodness, <laughs> I'm seeing all this in front of me. I would be foolish not to respond. And so I want to encourage you, for Christians and even for some of you today that are listening and watching that have never given your heart to Christ, make today the day of salvation. Do not wait any longer. And uh, at the end of the service, we don't normally do this, but maybe we will, you don't need me. You can do this in the privacy of your car. You can do it in the privacy of wherever you're at. You can give your heart to Jesus. I would encourage you to do that. Now is the time. Do not wait because he loves you and he's got a plan for your life and um, he's going to come for us and you do not want to be left behind because you will be left behind if you do not give your heart to him. And we don't know the time or the day or the hour when that day occurs, but Jesus said it's coming, and he said the signs are coming, and they're happening right before us. And so let's open our eyes, open our heart, and say, Lord, help me, cleanse me, and heal me, and save my soul, Lord. And that's something that we need to do. So let's go on here. So Jesus, notice, you know, as he comes into Jerusalem on this donkey, he's going to be rejected. And he's also going to be rejected when he comes back the second time, uh, except there's going to be a great slaughter at the end uh, for those who don't believe. And that's hard, isn't it? That's hard to consider that God would do something like that. But you've got to understand is that God is a God of love, of great love, but his vengeance is just as severe. And he does not um, delight in the death of the wicked, the Bible says. Uh, the Bible says that his judgment is his strange work meaning that it's not something he delights to do. He does not. But because he is all-loving and because he is just, he has to perform judgment as well. And that's the part we don't like. <laughs> and that's the part that you don't have to worry about if you give your heart to him. 
because he will always keep you in the palm of his hand. That's what he promised in John chapter 10. So let's go on to verse 9 here, and this is where it gets interesting. It says, Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, the son of David. This is a messianic title, meaning they knew who they were referring to. And then they said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And pilgrims at this time, as they would go up to the Passover feast around this time, they would sing a series of psalms called the Hallel Psalms. These were songs of praise, and they are Psalms 113 to Psalm 118. And in Psalm 118, there is a phrase, and let me just read to you verses 22 through 26 of Psalm 118, and this is what it says. It says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And who is that stone that Israel had rejected? The rock of their salvation that should have been their salvation, Jesus Christ. He is the rock. He is the, he is the cornerstone that they had rejected. And this was the Lord's doing, it says in verse 23, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And this is the day the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. And that the word there literally means Hosanna. Hosanna means save now. That's what it means. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, and now, or send now prosperity. And then in verse 26, what does it say? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, these people were so excited that even as they saw Jesus coming, they pronounced the psalm and they said, Hosanna, save now. And they're referencing Psalm 118, verses 22 through 26. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, right after Right after that, I'd like for you to write something in your Bibles. Uh, Between verse 9 and verse 10, I want you to write this reference. Luke 19, verses 39 through 44. Again, that's Luke 19, verses 39 through 44. Because chronologically, what happens immediately after this, where they're crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David, Luke actually gives us the precise thing because one of the things you have to understand, just for those of you who may not know this, the the Gospels, there's four accounts. And those four accounts are a record of Jesus' ministry. And um, what one Gospel may not cover, the other one fills in the blanks. And so what we can do is uh, many great men have taken upon themselves to make a, uh, a harmony of the Gospels and they've taken all the events in the Gospels and they've ordered them in a sequential order. And in sequential order, right after verse 9, is Luke 19, verses 39 through 44. And let me read it to you because this is significant. So, right after that, it says in Luke 19, verse 39, And some of the Pharisees, hearing this, hearing the people say, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In Luke 19, 39, it says, And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, saying, Teacher, rebuke your disciples, because they knew that they were equating deity to Jesus. So, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered and said to them, and he says, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. And there's a sick part of me that would have loved for them to be quiet so that the stones would cry out. Because believe me, the echo would be deafening because that's all that's there is rocks. 
<laughs> in Israel. And so, well, not really. There's a, there's very in that area there's a lot of rocks. But anyway, so now as verse 41 in Luke 19, now as he drew near, he saw the city and notice he wept over it. He wept over it saying, "If you had known even you, especially this your day." You have to understand this. And when you read this verse in Luke 19, verse 41, you have to underline it because it is one of the most significant things in the Bible. Because Jesus said to them, If you had known, even you, Jerusalem, especially in this, your day, this, your day, this day, this is your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come, he says in verse 43, upon you when you and your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Notice, time of your visitation. Underline that. And this, your time. Jesus told them that there would, become, there would come a time, because of their rebellion and their lack of understanding what this day was, that the enemies would surround them. And certainly Jesus is speaking at least on two fronts. The first one is about 35 years from that moment, or, or, or less, or, or maybe around 35 years, who would come against Jerusalem? The Romans. And what year was that? 70 A.D. We're looking at probably 30, 32 A.D., somewhere in that area. But in 70 A.D., we, don't, we do know that the enemies did embank around Jerusalem, and they destroyed Jerusalem, crucifying thousands of Jews, crucifying them and destroying the city, and even taking the Temple Mount and scraping it clean and pushing all the rocks off of the Temple Mount onto the ground, next to the Temple Mount. And I've actually got a picture. I don't have it with me uh, right now. I can't show it to you. But when we were in Israel recently, I'm standing on a group of rocks, huge, huge boulders of parts of the old temple that they had scraped off the top of the Temple Mount, and it's still in the valley there today. And I'm standing on those rocks, and i got a picture of me standing on those rocks. They're there today as a witness, as a testimony that that did happen. And so it did happen. But that's not even the most exciting part of it because notice, let's look at verse 41 again. It says, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. And this is, uh, we're still in um, Luke 19. He says, If you had known even especially you in this your day. What is he talking about? This day that he's talking about. Um this day that he's talking about is a day that Daniel the prophet had talked about in Daniel chapter 9. Now let me just read to you these verses, okay? Write these down. Kathy will put it in the script here. Daniel 9 chapters, uh, verses 24 through 26. Let me read them to you. And we're just going to look at this very lightly. We could spend a whole service on this alone, but we're not going to. Notice it says, Daniel, who was in Babylon at the time uh, when he wrote this in their 70-year captivity, uh, the Lord uh, revealed to him one of the most profound parts of, uh, of prophecy, the key really to all prophecy in the Bible. He says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. So 70 weeks, and these are weeks of years. And notice that the, the angel's telling him it's for your people. 
and for your holy city. So we're talking about the Jews and we're talking about Jerusalem. Notice, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore, verse 25, and understand... That from and here it is. This is the most. This is why what we're looking at today is so significant. That's why Jesus said, "You didn't know this your day." Well, what a day is he talking about? It's right here in verse twenty-five. The angel said to him, "Know therefore and understand." And again, this is uh, at least uh, uh, six hundred years, five hundred and fifty years before the the birth of Christ. This was given to Daniel. Know therefore that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, Mashiach Nagid, Jesus Christ. What did Jesus allow himself to, be, to, to happen on him on this day that we're reading? He allowed for the first time for himself to be presented as the Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah the Prince. Okay, that's the first time. So, from the, t- from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be 70, I'm sorry, seven weeks and 62 weeks. So we're looking at 69 weeks, right? The street shall be built and the wall even in troublous times. And after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, meaning literally killed, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Who is the people of the prince that shall come? The people were the Romans. They came in 70 AD and they destroyed the sanctuary and the city, didn't they? And so this prince, uh, I won't get into that right now, but the end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. But notice the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the prince is 69 weeks of years. Weeks of years. And so, um, now there was a, uh, there was a decree after Babylon, when the Jews were still in Babylon. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar passed from the scene and then uh, Darius and Cyrus, or Artaxerxes, uh, Langemanus, they came, you know, the Medes and the Persians, they came in afterwards, and the Jews were still in Jerusalem, or I'm sorry, still in Babylon at that time. But he gave, uh, these different kings after Nebuchadnezzar gave, gave decrees. And let me read to you, there's four of them. The first one was from Cyrus uh, of Persia, and that was in 536 BC. The second one was Darius. And that was in 519 B.C. The third decree was Artaxerxes Langemanus in 458 B.C. And again, he issued a decree also in 445 B.C. Now, as we look at, we're not going to go through and look at each one of these decrees. But I will say this, uh, the first decree of Cyrus um, that's recorded for us in Second Chronicles 36 and Ezra chapter 1. The scope of that is rebuilding the temple specifically. And then the second decree given by Darius in 519 B.C., it's referenced for us in Ezra chapter 5 through 6, verse 12. And the scope of that decree was rebuilding the temple, and it was a reiteration of Cyrus's decree, but now there are penalties attached to if 
if they're not given the supplies that they need because um, all these kings, they actually told them that they could rebuild the temple and also supplied them the needs, which is amazing. That's, that's a God-given thing that God would do that. And then the third decree was by Artaxerxes Longimanus, who we're referring to, and that's in uh, reference for us in Ezra chapter 7. And the scope of that was provision for the priests, the sacrifices and the articles for the house of God. But it's the fourth decree, that's the one that we're looking at because this is the one that Daniel had prophesied of in verse 25 of Daniel 9. And what is that? Remember what he said, that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, until Messiah the Prince, until he comes in, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That's a total of 69 weeks. And it says the street will be built again and the wall even in troublous times. Now, this fourth decree is recorded for us in Nehemiah chapter 2. And specifically, this one was to repair the walls and to rebuild the city. So Daniel, when he spoke of this, he spoke of this decree. He was prophesying it before it even began. And so before it even occurred, because uh, um, this decree came way after Daniel, many years after Daniel prophesied it in the book of Daniel. But let me read to you a little bit of Nehemiah chapter 2, just in case you're curious, because it is about the walls and the city, rebuilding the city walls. And we know the exact time that that occurred, and we'll look at that. In Nehemiah chapter 2, it said, uh, Nehemiah was a wine taster before the king, uh, Artaxerxes. And one time he came before the king, and this is recorded in Nehemiah 2, but I'm just going to paraphrase it. He was there before the king, and he was, had a sad countenance. He was upset. And the king said, uh, Nehemiah, what's, what's wrong? And he said, you know, how can I have a smile on my face when the, the place of my father's, the gates and the, and the city is completely destroyed. You know, the city and the walls and the gates are torn down. And, um, and so the king says, well, what would you like? What can I do for you? And Nehemiah prayed and God gave him, you know, can I go and repair those things? And the king said, well, how much time do you need? And so Nehemiah told him. And, uh, and then uh, the king asked him if he needed anything. And he says, you know what? It'd be really great to have the materials to build these walls. And, and you know what? The king actually gave him letters to be written, to take with him. And the, as he would go in and get close to, the, uh, to Jerusalem, there were orders for other nations to supply the materials needed to rebuild that temple. Amazing. This is, this is unprecedented in history. But so then, the, when this happened... Uh, he said to the king, May the king live forever. And this is in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 3. Why should my face be so sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, it lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? And the king said to me, What do you request? And so he prayed, and, the king, and, and then Nehemiah said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. And then let's skip down to verse 11. And so finally, uh, Nehemiah does leave, and he's given letters and supplies, and letters to get supplies. And so in verse 11, Nehemiah says, So I came to Jerusalem, 
and was there for three days. And then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. And I went about by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and to the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which were burned with fire. There's, the, there's why he was there. That's what the command in Daniel talked about, to rebuild those walls and those gates. And so Nehemiah is, is surveying this. And he says, And then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, or the officials, or the office, or the others who did the work. And then I said to them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste, notice, and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall, <laughs> emphasis mine, of Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. And so what was this day that Jesus was talking about? Well, it's the very day that Daniel prophesied, a very specific day. And what day was it that Artaxerxes Langemanus gave that decree to Nehemiah to go back to rebuild the walls and the gates? We know what that date is. It is, um, it is March 14th, 445 B.C. 445 B.C. And so if we know the time of that, the exact time of that event, then if we go forward 69 weeks of years after that, there's something significant happened 69 weeks of years. So we have to do the math. We have to do 69. And back at that time, they used the uh, 360-day years. And you can do this even with uh, 365 days. It, it doesn't really matter. The, the math comes out to be the same. But 69 weeks of years. So we have 69 weeks or 69 years times 7 years because it's a week of years, not just a week like 7 days, but 7 Seven years is a week of years. So 69 times 7 times 360, that gives us 173,880 days. So now you can go through and do all the math, and believe me, it's very interesting, and there's some really good books on that that have been written. And, uh, but so that decree was given on March 14, 445 B.C. Now fast forward. If we, we just did the math, fast forward 173,880 days from that moment, what happened? It was the very moment that Jesus came into Jerusalem. He said, this your day, Jerusalem. You didn't understand it. You didn't, you didn't see it coming. And you should have seen it coming. Your king is coming. Zechariah prophesied of it, that I would be coming in on a colt, right? And uh, until Mashiach Nagid, isn't that what it says in Daniel's prophecy? From the going forth of the commandment until Mashiach Nagid, there will be 69 weeks of years. Weeks of years. 173,880 days on the very day Jesus comes into Jerusalem on the donkey. Does that like make your, your brain just kind of crack like an egg? It ought to. Because that is precisely what happened on that very day. So is that day significant? You better believe it is. You better believe it is. That is one of the most significant things that happened. One of the most significant prophecies of, of the entire Bible is what we just looked at right now. And there's a lot to that, I'll be honest with you. But there, if, if you want to um, look at the math, I, I've got all this stuff here. I'm not going to go into it now because for time's sake. But it is incredible that the Lord knew 
the exact day that he would present himself as king. And that day was significant. And all the people of Jerusalem, they had no clue. They have no clue. And the reason I can say that is because of what he said over in chapter 23 of Matthew. He said this in verse 37. So Matthew 23, verse 37. What did Jesus say to them? O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But notice, you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall not see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Does that sound familiar from Psalm 118? It ought to. So, because they didn't see this their day, God left their... And, and in fact, after that, uh, you remember, uh, we're going to see in just a few moments. Um, actually, let's go on here in uh, verse 10 of Matthew 21. So that's significant, really huge. But notice in verse 10 of Matthew 21. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And so the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. And notice what happens right after that. Actually, the, uh, the other Gospels, if we put this in chronological order, it was actually the next day that Jesus goes and he cleanses the temple, which is the next section we have before us. So in verse 12, the very next day, Jesus went into the temple and he drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And this is the second time and the last time Jesus would cleanse the temple. Why? Why did he clean the temple? Because it became a house of merchandise rather than a house of prayer. And you know, when you think about it, I think God is very interested in having things that are holy set, set apart for him. And he doesn't like it when we fill a, a, a religious, you know, whatever it is, fill the temple. And if you think of it, the, the Paul, Paul the Apostle said under the inspiration of the Spirit that we are now the temple. And if you think about that, what kind of things are you filling your heart and your life with? What kind of things? And so this is really important for us to consider because as Jesus cleansed the temple, the last time before he would just a couple days after go to the cross, is he, is he concerned about our temple? Is he concerned about even our church here in Penfield up on the hill? Is he concerned about the temple which we are, which he indwells by his spirit? I think he is. And so is it high time that we really take, uh, uh, take stock in this relationship that we have with him? It really is, folks. It really is. And now is the time for us not to play games, and, but to really draw near. Because why? Because he loves us. He's not angry with you. But he certainly has gotten the whole world's attention right now, in our culture right now. He's got everyone's attention. Don't let this pass by you. Even as a Christian, let this time be a time where you say, Lord, I am done with the junk. <laughs> I want to get serious with you. I want to love you. I want to worship you. I want to read everything I can about you. I want to pray. I want to, I want to be with your people. And this is the time for us, folks. This is it. And so going on in verse 13. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. That's why he went and he cleansed the temple. Isaiah 56 verse 7 says that the temple is called a house of prayer. And in Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 11, he called it a den of thieves. What did he say to them? He says, Behold, Jesus, uh, the Lord is giving to Jeremiah the prophet this indictment 
uh, against Israel because of their idolatry, and this was prior to their uh, captivity from Babylon or going into Babylon. So he's warning them ahead of time before Babylon comes. And what does he say? Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder? Will you commit adultery? Will you swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, which was a false god at that time, and walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come to me and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations? He says in verse 11 of Jeremiah 7, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. And so that's why he cleansed the temple. Jesus came to his own, and his own did not receive him. They did not receive him. And he has the right to examine his people, the Jewish nation. He has the right. And he has the right to examine us, doesn't he? He does. And you know what? What did David say? Lord, search me and try me and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the, uh, the way of everlasting. And, and, and that was David's penitent heart. And we need to have that same heart. Do you have that same heart? Do you really mourn over your sin? Now, this is not a popular message. <laughs> but you know what? We have to look at it straight in the face. We have to look at it straight in the eyes and say, Lord, uh, you did this in the temple. You have every right, Lord. You created me. And even by rights of redemption, you own me, Lord. You own me. My life is yours now. And I don't need to be afraid of what he's going to do. i got to be honest. Before I came to know Jesus, I was scared to death of giving my heart to him. But there's nothing to be afraid of. Because once I gave my heart to him, then my life really, really began. Yeah, there were some things that needed to change. And yeah, there were some things that I was really upset about and some things that were really unknown to me. But the more I read the Word of God and the more His Spirit was just indwelled in me, the assurance, the peace, the joy, the salvation, the, the, the relief, knowing that I'm, I'm not going to hell. Do you know that? Do you have that same witness in your heart? Because you need to. In the day that we live in today, you need to understand you need to know that Jesus died for your sin. He died for my sin. There's no other way around it. There's no other holy guru anywhere on the planet that can offer you salvation. Nobody claimed to be God except for Jesus. God in the flesh. He was the only one. Actually, there were others who claimed they were God. There's only one who died for the sin of man. The sin issue has to be dealt with. So will you allow yourself, like he examined the Jews in that temple, will you allow yourself to be examined? Will you submit your heart to the Lord? There is an awakening going on in our country right now. There is, and it's happening, and I'm loving it because there are people calling, there are people tuning in that have never tuned in before. And i got to be honest with you, as a pastor, I'm excited because people are really hoping and wondering about these things that are written in the Bible. And one thing that I get jazzed about is anyone who is really excited about the Word of God and they really want to know, man, I tell you what, I'm just bubbling. <laughs> I'm very excited because I know what has happened to me and I know where I'm going. And I want that same hope and that same uh, desire to be fulfilled in other people's lives because there's nothing like it in all the world. There's nothing that can give me the hope that I have through Christ because His Spirit dwells in me. Do you have His Spirit dwelling in you? 
Are you a believer in Jesus Christ or are you just a religious person going through the motions, giving your money to church, hoping that somehow your, your sins will be forgiven by your good works that you do? There's no good works that can get you into heaven. There's only one work and that is to believe on the name of Jesus Christ. That is the only way you are going to get to heaven. There is no other way. So Jesus, let him let him examine you. In Revelation chapter 1, this vision that John saw of Jesus, it says that Jesus held these stars in his hand and, the, and he was in the midst of the lampstands. And, and in, in the 20th verse of chapter 1 of Revelation, Jesus defines who those stars in his right hand were and who those lampstands are. The stars were the, the pastors of those seven churches that he was writing to at that time. And also the lampstands represented the churches. So Jesus has the right by way of redemption and creating us to stand in the midst of his church and to bring us to, to love us, to encourage us, yes, to blow our minds, absolutely, to love on us like we've never been loved before. But he has the right to scrutinize and he has the right to chasten us. Now, I'm not saying that what we're going through right now in our country is God's chastening hand. It could be. He's certainly doing it worldwide. I have no idea what, his, what, what it is that his ultimate plan is, but I do know one thing. It's got my attention, and it ought to get your attention. But um, who knows exactly what it is, but I think his will is being done because it is causing an awakening in unbelievers and it's certainly awakening the church. It's shaking the trees, shaking the branches, and he's saying, wake up. Wake up, church. Wake up, world. You've been missing it. You've been missing it. And even many churches are playing games. You know, the, uh, there are some churches that it's just, a, it's just an entertainment center. They get in and they have... Uh, video games for the kids and there's no message for the kids it's all video games it, and then it's just some kind of feel-good message God loves you and he he loves you so much and all you have to do is give a thousand dollars to this church and and God will bless you sevenfold for that you know for that money that you send in to my ministry you know I mean this is nonsense the, the church of God is not about money it's not about entertainment. It's about Jesus Christ. And God help any pastor, any man, uh, anyone who makes it anything else. That's not why we've been called to minister. We've been called to worship Jesus and to point people to Him. That is the goal. That is the mission. Isn't it not? Isn't that the Great Commission recorded for us in Matthew 28? But notice in verse 14, now, back in Matthew 21, Then the blind and the lame in the temple, after he cleansed the temple, they came to him and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and crying again, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. They were jealous of Jesus. Because here these religious men were supposed to be um, uh, uh, being examples to people. But instead they were ripping them off and stealing their money. And all they were concerned about was money and prestige in their own name. And Jesus overthrew the tables. And they were jealous. They were incredibly incensed and jealous over Jesus. And so if they weren't going to follow him, all, all they could do is think about how do we destroy this man. And that's exactly what they did. That's what, that's what Good Friday is all about. And we'll get to that this next Friday. So then he left them and he went out. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 16 it says. Let's go back to verse 16. And he said to them, Do you not hear what these are saying, these children? And Jesus said to them, Yes, you have never read. And he quotes from Psalm 8. 
Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. The very small ones who didn't really have any scruples yet, they were so easily able to worship Jesus. But for some reason, when we get older and more advanced and we get more mature and we get more worldly, all of a sudden we think that we've got it all together. And Jesus is saying, you know, to, be, to come into my kingdom, you have to be like a little child. You have to be like a little child. A little child simply believes because the parent tells them. They'll believe, and that's why it's so important for us as, as, as fathers, as mothers, to tell our kids the truth, to tell our grandkids the truth. Because they'll believe whatever we tell them because they trust us. And so are we telling them the truth? Are we loving them and telling them the truth? So then verse 17, he left them and he went out of the city to Bethany, which is just on the other side of the Mount of Olives there. Notice, now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And he said, Let no fruit grow on you ever again. And immediately the fig tree withered away. And then the disciples saw it, and they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? And Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that if you, had the, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Now, even though this was a lesson about faith and about prayer, uh, one of the things it also signifies is Jesus came to Jerusalem on that donkey as their, to present himself as their king. And just like the fig tree, which the fig tree is always uh, symbolic of Israel, and he came to his own, and what did he find? He found an empty religion that, they, that the, the Christ was not the center of anymore. In fact, they were just going through the motions. They were just going through the rituals. They were saying the words, but there was nothing going on in their heart. Do you see the problem with that? That, that, that's a lack of sincerity. That's a real lack of devotion. And see, that's why Jesus said, you know, don't just pray rote prayers all the time. Really think about what you're praying. And so when we pray, we don't just rattle off, you know, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We go through that whole thing and then we leave and we forgot what we even prayed because we have it memorized for years and we just pray it. Is that the way we pray? No, that's supposed to be a model prayer. You, you, you read that, and if you break that up into the sections, you can kind of help yourself stay, stay organized in your prayer. God's a God of order. and so But we need to pray, and they weren't. They were just going through the motions. And like that fig tree that should have had figs, he said it's, not, it's empty, just like Jerusalem was empty. So then he goes on, verse 33. And we're going to end here shortly, folks. I apologize. Because we're online and we don't have a meal immediately following us, we can spend a little more time here. So bear with me. But I, uh, trust me, I think you'll, you'll be blessed because uh, the Lord has some more to say to us. In Matthew uh, 21, verse 33, Jesus, um, we're, we're going to skip down in the chapter here, and it's the parable of the wicked vine dressers. So here another parable Jesus said to them. Uh, and he said this, um, he said, There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, and he dug a wine press in it and built a tower, and he leased it out to vine dressers and went into a far country. So Jesus is giving this picture of something they would really understand because most of them were agrarian. They had vineyards. Um, they understand exactly what he was saying. And now when vintage time drew near, verse 34, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. 
Verse 37, then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, surely they will respect my son. And what is he talking about here? He's talking about God sending his son. He sent the prophets, right, to the children of Israel, to the vineyard. And the vineyard uh, was out to lunch. The vineyard rebelled. And, and the Lord sent prophet and prophet and prophet after telling them to turn from their sin and to turn to God. They did not. They killed most of the prophets. They, they murdered them. And then finally, they sent his only son. And, 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 and God, the Father, sent his son. And what did they do to him? They killed him. And what did they say? Verse 38. But when the vine dressers, when they saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him, they cast him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these vine dressers? And then they said to him, because Jesus was talking uh, at this time, he was talking to the chief priests and the elders of the people. He was telling them this. So he asked them, what will he do to those vine dressers when he returns? And they said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and leave and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? And didn't we just read this a few moments ago in, in Psalm 118? And here he quotes it again. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He's basically saying to them, I am that, that stone, that cornerstone that you rejected. This whole thing was about the relationship between me and Israel, and you religious leaders. That's what this was all about. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Now, God wasn't going to be through with Israel uh, forever. He, he chastened them and he led them into captivity, but he promised he'd bring them back and he's got a glorious future yet for them. But one thing that did happen is the gospel was rejected by the Jews, but guess what the apostles did? They went to the Gentiles and those nations bearing the fruits of it are you and I. Think of all the nations that have been benefited from the gospel message um, outside of Israel, uh, the whole world, all the Gentiles. That's, that's us. And notice in verse 44, And whoever calls, whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. So what would you rather have? Would you rather fall? Here's a rock. Would you rather fall upon the rock and be healed, or would you have the rock crush you? As we looked at Revelation 19, verse 11, that's the day when the rock is coming and is going to crush. But see, when I fall on the rock, when you and I fall on the rock, we give our heart to Jesus. And see, that's what I did um, nearly 25, 26 years ago. I fell on the rock and I was healed. And I, and I know where I'm going. Have you done that? You know, have you fallen on the rock? You don't want to be in that place where the rock falls upon you because there is a time when that will happen. Because, and God doesn't delight in that at all. He would have none to perish, but that all should come to repentance. Isn't that what the scripture says? It is. And He loves you. Do you understand? He's got a great, great plan for you. He loves you so much. So let's go on here. Verse 45, Now when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard the parables, they perceived that He was speaking of them. Duh. He really was. <laughs> of course He was. He was speaking to them, and they knew it, and their heart was pricked. And notice what happened. But when they sought to lay hands on Him, they feared the multitudes, because they took Him for a prophet. And see, they, from then on, from that moment, from that moment that we're reading right now until six days later, five days later, whatever it was, 
they would seek with all of their heart to destroy him because they were insanely jealous of him. He was bad for business in the religious world because Jesus set people free. He was able to uh, uh, perform miracles, something that the religious leaders were not able to. And yet Jesus was able to. And now all the people are coming to him. And yet even on the cross, everyone deserted him. He was alone on that cross as he bore the punishment for our sin. So, but you know what? Let's finish up with one, um, with one area here. Go with me to John chapter 10, and we're going to finish here. Sorry for the long service. Let me read to you. We're going to read verses 1 through 30, and then we're going to end. This is important. Because here's what it's really about. Jesus is a good shepherd. Jesus is coming. The King is coming. He did come to His own on this day, which we know was prophesied hundreds of years in advance, to the very day, as Daniel said to us, from the moment that that decree went out, Jesus came to His own and they rejected Him. And Jesus is also coming back. And before He is coming back, Jesus went into, He uh, submitted Himself to the death of the cross. And He is our example. And His whole life is an example for us. And He is the true shepherd. Read with me John chapter 10. It says, Most assuredly, Jesus said to His disciples, I say to you, He who does not enter the sheepfold by... Um, excuse me. He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. There's only one way to Christ, only one way to heaven, to God the Father, and that's through Jesus, right? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me. Is that what he said in John 14, verse 6? It is. But notice, he says, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Jesus is the door. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. There is so much here that we don't have time to go into, but that's what a shepherd does. A shepherd, they know the shepherd's voice. He can make a funny little sound, and those sheep will come scrambling to him because they know it's time to eat. (laughs) And he knows exactly. They know his voice. Do you know his voice? So, and he brings out, and when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them. Didn't Jesus go before us? And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. And Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. But then in verse 7, notice, Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All whoever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If any man enters by me, he will be saved. And I will go in and out and, and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. And I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. And see, that's exactly what Jesus has for you and I. That's why he wants uh, to bless you. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd, verse 11. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who does not, um, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming, and what does he do? He leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them and eats them. 
But the hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. But I am the good shepherd, Jesus said, and I know my sheep, and I have known and, and am known by my own. And as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And see, that's what Jesus is going to do here in about five days, uh, this Friday coming up. That's exactly what he is going to do, um, or what he did actually. Verse 16, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. That's the, the Gentiles, you and I. And them I must also bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Jew and Gentile together, it's called the church. <laughs> Jew and Gentile together. If, they, if anyone in, who's a Jew who gives their heart to Christ, they become part of the church, because that's who Jesus made them. The two shall become one. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. And notice, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself, and I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received of my Father. Go down with me to verse 27 of that same chapter. We have to finish with these. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. No one has given anybody eternal life but Jesus. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. We're going to die physically, but we'll never die spiritually. We will be with Him, and we'll actually get a new body at the resurrection. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. How, how, much, how secure are you in the palm of Jesus? I, very secure. That's what He said. He said, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And notice, and no one, no one, no one, underline that, is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. That means Jesus is deity with the Father. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah, right? So let's end there. But I want to encourage you really quickly. Uh, for those of you who know Christ already, praise the Lord, you're encouraged. But I want to encourage those who have not given their heart to the Lord. You can do that right now, and it's very simple. You don't have to go through some kind of uh, all these loops and hoops. You don't have to give money. You don't have to do anything. You have to give your heart. That's what God wants. And so I would ask you to, in your, in your heart, to just ask God to forgive you. Confess your sins to Him, all your sins. And, he, even though, and it's okay if you don't even remember all of them. Confess what you know and give your heart to Him. Trust in Jesus Christ. Ask Him to come in and fill your heart, to, be, to come into your life, to come into your heart and to take over and, and start reading the Bible. And the Bible is going to come to life to you like it's never been before. Uh, when the Spirit of God has indwelt you, He's going to reveal it to you. And so let's pray right now. And if that is your heart, then, then welcome to the family of God because it is that simple, folks. It is that simple. There's no... There's no other thing that you need other than just a surrendered heart to Him. And so, Father, we, I just pray, Lord, for anyone here. Lord, I pray that um, Your Word says that if we confess our sins, You are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, You also said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father except through Me. Lord, there is no other way. And Jesus, I pray for anyone here uh, that's watching, that's listening, Lord, that they will make that commitment and that they will give their heart completely to you, Jesus, because you died on the cross for my sin, for all of our sin. And Lord, there's no other way uh, but through, through Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we just thank you and praise you, and we just thank you for this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.